0: In reverence to God's word, would you please silence your phones and open your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Thank you for gathering with us this morning to celebrate our resurrected Lord. Luke chapter 1. In the fall of 2020, an American named Philip Walton was kidnapped in Nigeria. At the time, President Trump was the president, and there was news that the extremists demanded that Philip's family in America give a ransom of a million dollars or he would die. And so the president sent in SEAL Team 6 to conduct a special operation to rescue Philip. In the middle of the night, in just a few short hours, the Navy SEALs made a precision strike. They dropped in and they rescued Phil and brought him home. Phil Walton was in a hopeless situation. There was no way he could get himself out of that. But he had a skilled team of rescuers who were able to save him. And I'm certain someday that's going to be a movie if it already isn't. The Bible teaches that every person born into this world is born into a hopeless situation. Every person is shackled by sin, all have a spiritual death sentence upon them. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of our sin is death. In other words, you work your whole life sinning. And at the very end of your life, God gives you a paycheck, and it's death. It's eternal separation from him. In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, he describes this death as suffering the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Jesus preached in Luke thirteen three, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And he was speaking of hell, perish in hell forever. And those are the facts. That's what the Bible teaches. Sin has condemned us to eternal judgment. And there's nothing that you can do about it. You cannot save yourself. Religion cannot save you. No good deeds can outweigh your bad deeds. The five pillars of Islam can't rescue you. The cycle of reincarnation can't save you. Religious ritual can't save you. Not even getting dipped in water or sprinkled in water can save you through baptism. A person can only be saved when God gives them the gift of salvation through Christ. Romans 3.24 says we are justified, we are declared righteous, we are given the gift of salvation as a gift through the redemption, through the saving power that is in Christ Jesus. And God offers, God offers everyone a gift, and it's the gift of Salvation through Christ. And you know the crazy thing about a gift? Is you can't work for it. You can't earn it. You must receive it by faith. The gift of salvation is given from our God, who is a triune God. The past two weeks, we have been studying the Trinity. The Trinity, Trinity. the word Trinity means three try unity, three in a unity of one. The Bible teaches that there is one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So not three gods, but one God. Not not three names for one God, but three persons. The God of Christianity is unlike any other God a human could invent. Because God The God of Christianity is the one and only true living God. He is not a creation of man's imagination. He is a being who is infinite, eternal, transcendent, holy, majestic, who exists in a unity of three persons who eternally relate and love and work and fellowship together. And yes, that is impossible for us to completely understand, isn't it? But that's who God is. And the Bible teaches that God saves us and he is, the God who saves us is a God who is triune. He is one God in three persons. God saves us according to the Father's will through the Son who came and lived an obedient life and died by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God works as a tri- a trinity. He works as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. So the Bible talks about salvation as a gift from God. The Father offers the gift. The Son offered his life to pay for the gift. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives it to those who believe. So this is Resurrection Sunday. So in Resurrection Sunday, we're talking about why the Trinity is essential to salvation, to resurrection. Do you realize that salvation, redemption, resurrection is only possible through a triune God? So that's what we're talking about this morning. Typically, we would be going verse by verse through the Bible. This morning, we're going to go through a book of the Bible, through the gospel of Luke. And don't worry, we're not going to be going through every verse in the gospel of Luke. But you should be in Luke chapter 1. And the question I really want to ask this morning is, how has our triune God provided salvation for us? There really were four necessary works that needed to be accomplished in order to provide the gift of salvation. And first is the supernatural conception. The first necessary work of the triune God was to provide a Savior who is both God and human, and to do so through a supernatural conception. And you might ask, why? Why was that necessary? Well, if Jesus had been born of of a normal human father and a normal human mother, like Mary and Joseph, then he would have inherited a sinful nature. You see, every person is born into this world with a sinful nature, which means that they have desires that are contrary to the will of God. It means that they do that which is contrary to the will of God. We lie, we complain, we take things that are not ours, we are selfish. Everyone has this problem. We're all born with this problem. And if you don't think that's the case, then I would invite you to go down and visit the children's church room. I don't know how many boys exited, but that was a slew of boys. And I guarantee if you talk to those children's church workers, they will agree with me that everyone is born into this world a sinner. And I can say that because one of those boys is mine. But two humans, a male and a female, Husband and wife, they could not produce a child who is sinless because we are all sinners. Like begets like sinners conceive and give birth to sinners. And so the only hope for us was for the father, the holy father, to send his holy son to be conceived in a virgin's womb by the Holy Spirit. And this was a miracle, a miracle that enabled God to take on human flesh So look down in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Now, you might be thinking, isn't this what you talk about on Christmas? Well, we'll get to the resurrection at the very end here. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we find a young teenage girl named Mary. Mary was engaged to a God-fearing man named Joseph. And I want you to imagine this this bride-to-be in Nazareth. Maybe she was at home by herself, planning her wedding, thinking about what was going to happen But then an angel appeared to her, and she was told that God would supernaturally work in her womb and cause the eternal Son of God to be conceived in her by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Mary was terrified when she saw this angel, as any human would be and any human should be, but God's message was one of grace "'O favored one, O one that has been graced by God, "'greetings, the Lord is with you.'" And notice the one that's at work in her life, it's the Lord, it's the one true and living God. And notice he works as three persons. The father sent the son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, the angel said to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary.'" For you have found favor with God. That's God the Father. This this is his appointed plan to save sinners. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So Mary will have a son His name will be Jesus, and this son will be truly human. He will be Mary's son, but also he is the son of the most high. He is the son of God. The son of God is eternal. He was never created. He has always been. He is fully God. He is one with the eternal Godhead. He is the son of God. But the Son of God was given another nature, and that is the nature of humanity. And he was conceived in Mary, and then nine months later, born and named Jesus. And so the obvious question Mary asks here is, how can this be? Like, how does this happen? Verse 34, the answer is found. Verse 34 and verse 35, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? That's a good question. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. What? The son of God. So here we find the father God sent the son of God to be conceived in the womb of Mary. How was that possible? By the spirit of God. And you might ask, was that really all necessary? Was all that really necessary? The answer is yes. You see, the only hope for us to be saved is to have a savior who is truly God, 100% God, and truly man, 100% man. As a human, he could live the life that we could never live, and he could die in our place. And as the Son of God, he could take the full punishment of eternal hell upon himself, and he could provide for us the gift of eternal life. Look in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Luke 2 10 gives the announcement that a baby is born. Mary gave birth to Jesus, the God-man, and what happened when he gave birth to Jesus? Heaven erupted in cheers. It was like the star player took the field and the stadium went wild. Heaven was roaring with praise. In the sky of Bethlehem, a door of heaven opened and out poured the glory of God and the announcement to the shepherds. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? A savior who is Christ the Lord. And in verse 13, a multitude of the heavenly hosts we're there praising God and saying, what? Glory to God and the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. I mean, here the star player enters the field and heaven can't help us scream out, Praise the God, praise God, the Savior is here. So how was our triune, how has our triune God provided salvation? First, through a supernatural conception. And then secondly, through an obedient life. Through an obedient life. In order to truly save us, we need a savior who could live the life that we have not lived and frankly, we could not live because of our sin. We need a savior who has lived a life of holiness before God and a life of obedience unto God. We need a savior who has lived a perfect, righteous life and who is able to give us that righteousness as a gift. If righteousness were able to be deposited in a bank, we would be broke. We would be homeless. We would we would owe trillions of, of dollars. If righteousness could be deposited in a bank, Jesus would have a bank account that would be an infinite amount of righteousness. And he got that righteousness because he earned it through his life and his death. And he can give it to us. And you and I, We need a brother like that. We need a brother who can pay our debt of sin and gift us his righteousness. Look at Luke 2, verse 39. How did he do this? He lived a perfect life in our place. Luke 2, 39. And when they, that's the family of Jesus, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child, that's Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor, the grace of God was upon him. The Bible describes Jesus as being a baby and then growing as a child and then becoming a man, and he lived a normal human life. He had a mother and a stepfather. He had brothers and sisters. But the major distinction between Jesus and every other person was that Jesus lived a life of perfection. He lived a life of obedience and submission to the Father. He perfectly obeyed God's laws. He always responded in righteousness. His words, his motives, his actions always pleased his father in heaven. And what's remarkable about this is that this is the eternal relationship of God the son with God the father. God the father loves his son. God the son loves the father. And God the son lives in obedience and submission to his father. In fact, he came to this world in obedience to his father. Philippians 2.8, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This is speaking of Jesus, even death on a cross. Do you realize it was Jesus' great delight and joy to obey his father? John chapter 14 says, Jesus said, I do as the father has commanded me, So that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus obeyed the Father because he loved the Father. He obeyed because he loved. Because he loved, then he obeyed. And even we see this in the the eternal relationship of the Father and the Son, but we even see this when Jesus is a boy. I mean, he's 12 years old, and he actually responds in submission to God the Father, but also to his earthly mother and stepfather. Look in Luke 2.51. Luke 2.51. And he, that's Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, went down with them, And came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. That is not a popular word in our society. Submissive, obedient. That's not one that people cherish. People see that as something that's an awful thing to do. But here Jesus modeled for us the life of blessing. Jesus honored his earthly mother and stepfather just as he honored his heavenly father. And probably a good question for us to ask those in here who are still in the home, those who are children and teenagers, do you honor your parents? I mean, do you see your parents as a blessing to protect and provide? And you might say, but you don't know my parents. They're not perfect. You know what's amazing to think about? Jesus was perfect, and yet he was submissive to parents who weren't perfect. And how about all of us? Do we delight to obey our Father in heaven? I mean, is our greatest joy to do the Father's will? I mean, do we love to obey his word? Do we love to gather as his church? Do we love to forgive as he forgives? Do we do so with joy? And again, you might say, well, you don't don't know my life. You don't know the spouse I live with. And the answer to that is, you're right, I don't. But Jesus does. And he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And friends, he was truly human. I mean, he felt the temptation and he felt the reality of that upon his heart. Yet he delighted to obey God. And you might say, well, it's not fair because wasn't he also God? How was he able to live a righteous life like that? Well, here's, here's what's interesting he was able to live a righteous life, not because he was God, but because he was empowered with the Holy Spirit. You see, when he was on earth, he set aside his rights to depend upon his deity. And so it wasn't, that was not the reason he lived a righteous life. It was because he actually depended upon the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit and he depended upon the Holy Spirit to obey his father. Jesus was able to live a righteous life because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. In other words, he depended upon the Spirit to obey the Holy Father. I believe like John the Baptist, Jesus was filled with the Spirit from the womb. In fact, if you look down in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, you can notice the power of the Spirit upon Christ. John the Baptist was in the Jordan there Jesus came and he was baptized by John, Luke three twenty-two. and the Holy Spirit, while he's in the water there, he, the Holy Spirit descended on him, that's Jesus, in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, that's the voice of the Father, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased." So here the father presented Jesus as the righteous, perfect son. And notice what the father said about him. This is my son, my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. In other words, this is my holy son. He always obeys me. He always does what's right. He's righteous. How was he able to do that? Well, the Father sent the Holy Spirit to empower the Son to do that. The Father sent the Spirit, and therefore the Son was able to obey. And notice how all three persons here work in a unity of one. One God, three persons. The Father appointed the Son, the Son obeyed the Father, and the Spirit empowered him to obey. And the life and ministry of Jesus is marked by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Look in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Luke 4 1. Here, the scripture says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returning from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So Jesus faced this intense time in the wilderness of temptation. The wilderness was a desert. It was a desolate place. There were wild animals there. It was cold at night, blazing hot in the day. But the worst part for Jesus was the spiritual warfare that took place. The devil unleashed hell upon Jesus. How was Jesus able to resist that? How was he able to defeat Satan? Well, scripture says, with the word, by the power of the spirit, he was full of the spirit. Look at verse one, full of the spirit, and he was led by the spirit. That is to say, the father purposed that the son would be tempted So the spirit led him to the wilderness. That does not mean the father tempted him, right? The devil tempted him, but the father placed him there in that horrible situation. And the father was with him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that wilderness, Jesus suffered. I want you to imagine him in that wilderness as he suffered physically, he suffered spiritually, he suffered mentally and emotionally and he was attacked over and over and over by Satan. And the number one attack upon Jesus was an attack upon the word of God. Satan twisted God's word. Satan misled with God's word. He wanted Jesus to doubt God's word. So how did Jesus respond? Well, if you remember the account, he responded with the word of God. In the power of the spirit of God. In fact, look at verse 14, Luke four fourteen. And Jesus returned out of this 40 days, out of the wilderness, returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Jesus walked out of there victorious. How is that possible? Because he was filled with the Spirit, he submitted his life to the Spirit. And Christians, I think it's good for us to remember that Jesus is our Savior, he's also our example. Our lives are full of trials and temptations. I mean, some of you in here are going through some very, very difficult time. I heard about it. One of the people who has been attending our church this morning is in the hospital. He normally sits right down here. That's a very difficult time. You might be going through something very difficult. Maybe it's an intense temptation. Maybe it's something physical. Maybe it's something spiritual but I want you to know that God has placed you in that situation and he loves you and he's with you and he's given you his spirit. God has times for us to be in the wilderness. And how does he want us to respond? Well, first of all, I think it's good to remember That the attack upon us during those times, the way we're attacked is the attack is an attack upon God's word. Satan wants us to get away from God's word. He wants us not to trust God's word. He wants us to doubt God's word. And so when you're in those intense times, you wonder, where is God? Are his promises true? And Satan's attack upon you really is an attack upon God's word. And so what should you do? Go to the word. Go back to the word and use the word to fight and depend upon the Holy Spirit in prayer. Jesus is our savior. And Christians, he's our example as well. Look at verse 17. Jesus walked into The synagogue, Luke 4, 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place. It was written. Now, notice this seems by chance, right? I mean, they happened to give him the scroll of Isaiah. The scroll of Isaiah would have been at least in two parts. So they happened to give him the second part. And he opened it up, which would have been very difficult to find, Uh, A chapter and verse, since they didn't have chapter and verses back then. He opened it up to Isaiah chapter 61. This was obviously God's providential plan for him to announce that he is the Messiah. So here God, the Father, ordained the Son to read this scripture. Look at verse 18. He read Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This text declares that God the Father sent his Son to be the anointed one in the power of the Spirit to save those who are without hope. And then look at verse 21. And he began to say to them, Jesus said to them, this, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the one sent from God I am the one who saves. And over the next three years, what you see is Jesus proving that he is the savior. He is the word of God. Satan and his demons came out to fight. That's why you see so much demonic activity, but Jesus kept obeying the father, depending on the spirit, speaking the word. Let me show you one last text. Go to Luke chapter 10. One last text on this point, I mean. Luke chapter 10, I think the unity of the Trinity is, is beautifully pictured in Jesus' prayers. Look at Luke chapter 10 and verse 21. In that same hour, he, that's Jesus, notice this, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, he prayed, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Here we see the joyful fellowship of the triune God. The Father loved the Son. The Son praised and petitioned His Father, and He did so with joy and the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what's incredible for us as Christians is that we get to fellowship in this holy trinity. We get to pray to the Father. We do it through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes Christians, some Christians can view praying as a gloomy conversation. It's something that maybe they want to avoid doing. Sometimes at the church, we will have times of prayer. We have at least once a month, we have the men gathering for prayer Sadly, there's usually only about 10 or 12 people who attend. And I know some people work on Saturdays. Some people have other events that are taking place. But I think in general, we could probably agree that many people just aren't attracted to coming and praying together with other people. And I, and I think probably because many people miss the joy of fellowship with the Father through the Son, they miss this right here. I mean, if you could see Jesus praying, what you would see is one praying to the Father in joy. And that's why the disciples were like, Lord, teach us to pray. I mean, do you realize right after this in Luke chapter 11 is the Lord's prayer? And when they saw Jesus pray, they're like, I want to pray like that. So the Lord said, okay, here's a way to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, holy, hallowed be your name. How has our triune God provided the gift of salvation third through a sacrificial death? Look at Luke chapter 22, going to the end of Luke. Luke chapter 22, the son was supernaturally conceived as a human, lived an obedient life so he could die in our place. In Luke 22:41, we find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. It's the middle of the night. It's the night before he died. In Luke 22 here, we find him in great agony. The Bible says he was actually he was actually sweating great drops of blood. He was so stressed. He knew what was in store for him the next day. Look at verse 41, Luke 22:41, and he that's Jesus withdrew from them the disciples about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. So here in the darkness of night, on his knees, he prayed in the spirit. Remember, he told his disciples, he said, the spirit indeed is willing. In other words, depend on the spirit in prayer because your flesh is weak. And the point is that the disciples needed, at any other time, this was the time, they needed to depend upon the spirit. I mean, if Jesus said to you, okay, guys, I'm gonna warn you right now, this is the time that you need to depend upon the spirit in praying, what would you do? Well, these disciples, they did not do that. They fell asleep. When I was in college, we used to do these Friday night, all night prayer meetings, and we would regularly fall asleep. Someone would have to wake us up I was in college, and honestly, the next day I was probably going to sleep in. Didn't have much going on except maybe some tests. But here, these disciples were warned that Satan wants to sift you as wheat, Peter. There's a lot coming up here, Peter. This is going to be a time of temptation here, disciples. Depend upon the Spirit. Pray. Don't give in to your flesh. But they didn't, they slept. They didn't depend upon the spirit. They slept. But not Jesus. He prayed. Look at verse 42. This is what he prayed. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup was used in the Old Testament to picture God's wrath and judgment poured out on sinners. Have you ever had maybe... A grandma or a mom or someone else give you their own concoction of something to drink when you're sick. You know, they make a little tea or maybe they have their own medicinal drink that they have you drink and it tastes like chalk and cleaning fluid and I don't know, something else, right? And you drink that and you just want to spit it out, right? I mean, you, you automatically recoil as you put that in your mouth. And here in this garden, Jesus is considering the cup of wrath that he would consume on the cross. And what was in that cup? It was a cup full of vile, satanic, evil wickedness. It was a bottomless cup of eternal hell. It contained all the lies of men, the brutality of hate, the bitterness of envy and covetousness was a cup full of the depravity of our hearts, our motives, our desires, our selfishness, our egotistical pride, our wicked thoughts. And he knew that next day on the cross, he would open up his soul to that cup of judgment. Not for anything he had done, but to become hell's target in our place. Soon a large mob came to that garden with soldiers. They took him to the high priest's house for a secret midnight trial. Look at verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. The Bible says they blindfolded him, they spit on him, they punched him, they mocked him. Verse 70, so they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So that next morning, they brought him to Pilate to put him on trial again. The mob convinced Pilate to torture and to crucify Jesus. The soldiers stripped him. They ridiculed him. They beat him with a rod. They crushed his head. They flogged him. They paraded him through the streets. Then they nailed him to a wooden cross. Look at Luke 23, 33. Next chapter, Luke 23, 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, Jesus was treated like the worst of sinners, like a criminal, crucified with other criminals. And as he hung there, soldiers mocked him. The crowds laughed at him. But notice in verse 34, notice God's love in his heart coming from his lips. Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is not a decree that those mocking him were forgiven. This was a prayer that God the Father would save those that were mocking him. This was a revelation of the heart of God that God so loved the world that he sent his son. This is the reason the Father sent the son to demonstrate his love to sinners through forgiveness and salvation. So as Jesus looked on at those who hated him, those who had bitterness towards him and envy of him, his cry was, Father, forgive them. Did you know that the Father answered his prayer? Two criminals were hanging on the cross on each side of him. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And just think about that. He's on this cross. He's got to pull himself up. And he's dying for his sin and he's mocking Jesus. Verse 40. And the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed Justly, we deserve to be here for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. We deserve to die. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And notice what happens here. A vile, wicked criminal confessed he's a sinner. He deserved death. And he turns and trusts the Savior. He said, Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus, Yahweh is salvation. Save me. And Jesus responds, truly. I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Not after Purgatory, because there is no such thing. Not after baptism, that's not necessary to save you. Not after if you're good enough, you can't be good enough. But today. And what happened on that cross to that criminal? God loved him, sent his son, and forgave him. The father gave him the criminal, the gift of salvation. The father saved him through the son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And on that cross, the spirit applied the righteous life of Jesus and the sacrificial death of Jesus to the soul of that criminal. So that criminal went from a criminal to a child of God. And after his last breath, the spirit took that man's soul, to glory. And that, my friend, that is the gift of salvation right there, provided through the Son. And God offers that gift to you. And you know what's amazing about that gift? It's already paid for. It's paid in full. Christ paid for that gift on that cross. Notice verse 44, Luke 23, 44, It was now about the sixth hour, that's noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's three o'clock. While the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So for three hours, the earth has a blackout. Jesus suffered for sins in verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He breathed his last. The eternal price of sin was paid for by the Son according to the purpose of the Father. And then last, How has our triune God provided the gift of salvation through a victorious resurrection? Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb, and then Sunday morning, resurrection morning, God victoriously resurrected Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says that the Father raised the Son, Jesus from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing to think about? The triune God provides resurrection. And only a triune God could provide resurrection. The Father willed resurrection, the Son was the object of resurrection and the Spirit empowered resurrection. Look down in Luke chapter 24, verse 38. Luke 24, 38, the tomb was empty Jesus rose again. He was walking around with a resurrected body. Look at verse, I'm sorry, 39. Luke 24, 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Here's Jesus appeared to his disciples. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This was a real resurrection, This wasn't some kind of mystical spirit floating around. Jesus is walking. He says, you can touch me. I'm a real human, right? I'm 100% God. I'm 100% man. I'm a resurrected man now. And he, verse 40, he says, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish And he took it and ate before them. Why did he do that? To show them it's real. The gift of God is resurrection. And he proved to them that he rose from the dead. He said, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he stood in front of them and was saying, Here I am, I'm alive. And I can give you that gift as well. God has a gift for each one of us. It's the gift of salvation. Paid in full through the son, salvation has been provided for us through a supernatural conception, through a obedient life, through a sacrificial death and through a victorious resurrection. And here's the astounding truth. God will give that gift to anyone who confesses their sin and believes that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. And if you believe that God sent the Son to be the Savior of the world and you turn in faith to him, the Holy Spirit will apply the work of Christ to your life. The Spirit will cause your soul to be supernaturally born again he will apply the righteous life of Jesus to your account. He will apply the death and resurrection of Jesus to your soul. And you, at the moment of faith, are saved forever. You are a child of God, not based upon your works, not based upon your effort, not based upon your perfect prayer, based upon your faith in what Jesus has done for you. I think about that criminal how much do you think he understood of the Trinity? How much do you think he understood of all this we've been talking about? Uh, Probably not very much, but he did know this. When he he was on that cross, he knew that he was a sinner. He deserved to go to hell. And he knew that that guy on that cross who, who claimed to be the Savior could save him. And he trusted in Jesus to save him. And he called out for Christ to save him. And Jesus did and promised him today, you will be with me in paradise. Which person died first, Jesus or that criminal? Do you know? No, it was actually Jesus who died first. The criminal died second. Remember, they came and they broke their legs, but they didn't have to break Jesus' legs. So think about that. Jesus died first. He goes to glory. This man's still dying on the cross. His legs are broken, and eventually he dies. And then he goes into the presence of the Lord. What kind of reunion do you think that was? Here is Jesus in glory. The angels are cheering. Victory is won. Sin and death were defeated on the cross. And here comes the first one. And he's the worst of them all. He's a criminal, and he has no right to be there. He's done nothing in this world, and in the world, on, on, on his life on earth. He, had, he did nothing to earn his way there. Only by faith was he in heaven. And can you imagine him seeing Jesus Christ? I mean, oh, there's a trinity. <laughs> wow, this is amazing. I believe in you. If you're without Christ, God offers a gift to you. It's a gift of salvation. He, God the Father, is the one who saves us. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He does it by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our savior. And so friend, are you trusting in the God who saves? Christian, Jesus is our savior in our example example. Do you love the Lord? Do you love his word? Do you love to do his will? Are you depending on his spirit? Are you joyfully praying to the Father in the Spirit? Are you living a life that is sacrificial like his death? Are you longing for resurrection? I imagine there is at least one, maybe more people in here who don't know the Lord. The Bible says that today is a day of salvation. You never know when it's going to be your last day. And God says, here's the gift. You must receive it by faith. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray to the Lord?